Good, 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 good. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I'm Pastor T, one of the pastors here at Anacostia River Church, and this is the part of the service where we listen to God speaking to us. We've been speaking to God in our prayers uh, and speaking to God in our song, now in the preaching of his word, a word which we believe to be alive and active and, and inspired by God. God speaks to us. Now, before we do that, it'd be helpful if you don't have a Bible that you have one. So there are a couple of people in the aisles passing out Bibles. If you need one, just raise your hand, uh, hold them high, and we'll get you one this morning. Anybody need a Bible this morning? We're going to be in Acts chapter 16. If you're using one of those blue Bibles provided, that's on page 924. And before we get into the sermon, let me just say a quick word of thank you and have you join me in thanking God for all those brothers who've been preaching through the summer, through our Summer Psalter series, who brought us the Word of God and served us so very well. I felt my soul fed, and that's, that's a wonderful thing for a, a lead pastor to be able to sit under the Word sometimes and to be fed by the ministry of others, and so I trust that you were fed and encouraged as well. But it's been so long, I don't, I don't quite remember how to do this. Yeah, so y'all pray for you, boy. In fact, let me pray for us now. Let's seek the Lord. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would breathe upon this place. We do ask that you would open every heart to receive your word. Some perhaps for the first time and some for an unnumbered time. But in either case, freshly and powerfully speak to us. Give us visions of Christ and his glory and give us visions of usefulness in this world. Speak to us from your inspired word. Your servants listen in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, beloved, we begin a new series, um, eventually, through the book of Philippians, which I've entitled Serious Joy. Now, for some people, that sounds like an oxymoron. We tend to think serious people aren't joyful people. And we tend to think that joyful people, well, they're not, they're not all that serious. But when the Bible talks about joy, it talks about something rich and deep, something with ballast and gravitas, something with some weight at the bottom that keeps it from being rocked and tossed to and fro by circumstances. And that's what the book of Philippians is about in so many ways. It's a letter that Paul writes to a church in a city called Philippi in Macedonia. And over and over and over again, he says things like this, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. And in various situations. So when he thinks about um, the fact that he's in prison and yet the prison guards have come to Christ, he rejoices. But in the opposite end, even when he thinks about the fact that there are false teachers or teachers who are preaching Christ to despite him, but not out of a good motivation, Paul still rejoices. And the question for us in a world that's sort of fascinated with happiness and doesn't know how to find it is how do we come by this kind of joy? 
this deep, rich, rooted, strong, unshakable joy that is there even in life's most serious circumstances. How do we get that? I'm convinced pastorally we need that. Maybe it's just me. But I'm convinced that if you live long enough, your joy is threatened. And that you can hit seasons where joy just seems unattainable. And what we want to unlock in the book of Philippians is how it is that Paul seems to abound in joy no matter what's happening. But before we get to Philippians, we want to see how the gospel came to Philippi because he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. There were not always Christians there. There were not always people there who followed the Lord Jesus Christ. There were not always people there who knew the apostle Paul. The gospel had to arrive there and to give root to a church through the conversion of people who were not Christians into people who were Christians. And to see that story, we want to look in Acts chapter 16. The book of Acts is the sort of history of the early church and the expansion of the gospel in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here we're seeing a recording of God's divine work in the world establishing the church. And in Acts chapter 16, it's right on the heels of Acts chapter 15. That's really important because in Acts chapter 15, there's something called the Jerusalem Council. That's where all the elders of Jerusalem and all the apostles of the church gathered for this really important meeting. They had to resolve the question of how are the Gentiles included in the kingdom of God? Some people were saying they had to be circumcised and therefore become Jews before they could become Christians. But Paul and the apostles were like, no, 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 no. There's nothing added to the work of Christ. Not one part of the law But those who have repentance and faith, just as the Spirit had given to us, they too are Christ, are in the kingdom. And that question is settled definitively in Acts chapter 15. So when we come into Acts chapter 16 now, Paul and the missionary team are on this journey to make this gospel clear and to continue the work of starting churches. And the gospel comes to Philippi by six means, by six strategies. If you're taking notes, this is the outline. The gospel comes to Philippi, number one, through a diversified, qualified, culturally sensitized gospel team. Look with me in chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. This is what God's word says. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem in Acts 15. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. 
I want to make an argument from Acts 16 in these first five verses that if you want to see the gospel go into Philippi and you want to see the gospel go into a place like Washington, D.C., you, you want to see it in the hands of a diversified, qualified, culturally sensitized gospel team. Verse 1 there, you see, diversify. Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and father, his father was Greek. He's grown up all of his life crossing boundaries. He's grown up all of his life probably not feeling quite at home in Judaism and in Jewish culture because of his father and probably not feeling quite at home in Greek culture because of his mother. He's from an interracial, interreligious marriage. And that's known about him. And Paul now, right on the heels of figuring out with the Jerusalem council, how do we include people in the kingdom who are not Jews now, is thinking quite intentionally about grabbing someone who is not a Jew to make them a part of his team. Timothy's the kind of guy who is likely, as I said, had to move across barriers all of his life. And this text, and really the whole book of Acts, tells us that Diversity and inclusion has been a challenge in the church from day one. Notice now, it's not just a diversified team, it's also a qualified team. Verse 2. Timothy is a disciple. Look at his reputation. Who was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. He has a good reputation as a Christian in two cities including the one he's in, in Philippi. We want diversity and qualification together. See, diversity without a qualified leader risks tokenism. And folks claiming to be a qualified leadership who are indifferent to diversity risks colonialism. Not so with the early church. A diverse and qualified leadership, notice number three, that is culturally sensitized in verse three. Now, Paul takes Timothy, verse three says, and has him circumcised. Now, remember what they were just debating in Acts chapter 15. Must a Gentile be circumcised in order to be a part of the kingdom? And the answer comes back, decidedly no. So Paul is not here adding to the gospel. But notice what the text says. Paul knows the Jews in that region, and he knows the Jews in that region would stumble at the fact that Timothy's father is Greek. In other words, Paul is looking at the culture and understanding the objections that people in the culture will have, and he is looking to overcome those objections. He's looking to neutralize the kind of prejudice that would prevent the prejudiced person from hearing the gospel. Now let me tell you something, beloved. There's no bigotry stronger than bigotry backed by religious zeal. There's no bigotry stronger than folks who are prejudiced in their opinion, racist in their opinion, culturally supremacist in their opinion, who feel like they also have the commendation of God to be those things. That's twice as ignorant and twice as strong. 
That's what Paul is dealing with. Now, the interesting thing here, notice what Paul does. Because some of us, when we run into that kind of, that kind of bigotry and so on and so forth, or, or we anticipate that kind of opposition in the culture, some of us are inclined to say, well, they just need to get over and hear the gospel. That's actually not what Paul does, is it? Paul didn't just respond and say, y'all just need to get over it and hear the gospel. Paul actually accommodates their error in religious and cultural thinking and neutralizes the objection so that he might get the gospel to them by having Timothy circumcised. It's not that he believes the error. He recognizes that if he goes head on with the error, they're not going to hear the gospel. This is a very culturally sensitive and patient strategy. Bring it to Anacostia in the block. Next time you're on the block and you see one of these brothers, say, in the 5% nation or Hebrew Israelite, and they're doing what they're doing, how are you going to respond to that? Are we going to descend into arguing with them about their objections and their prejudices? Or will we grow to be savvy enough as a strategy to even accommodate the foolishness for a minute that we might actually get to Jesus. That's what Paul does here. He has a diversified, qualified, culturally sensitized team so that they might advance the gospel. You see the fruit there in verses 4 and 5? So Paul pulls his team together, and in verses 4 and 5, they go out, and the church is strengthened, and the numbers of the church are growing. Beloved, that's the kind of leadership we need in the church today. We don't need leaders in the church who are scared of difference. We don't need leaders in the church who won't lean into the difference. We don't need leaders in the church who are so fragile that to be told about their problems makes them angry and bitter and sharp in counterattack. We need Pauline leadership Amen. that sees that the kingdom includes and moves actively to include and that lays down privilege to anticipate objections and to neutralize them so the gospel can be heard. That's how the gospel is going to come to Philippi. We want to get skilled at maintaining diversity by learning the culture of the community, the community we're in, the communities we come from. For some of us, that's going to mean becoming aware that we have a culture. That's why the Whiteness 101 study was so really important. And for some of us, that's going to mean learning to cross cultural differences in conversation and dialogue. That's why the be the bridge conversation as a follow-up is so critically important. And for all of us, this means learning how to remove stumbling blocks for people we're trying to reach so that we can actually get to the truth of the gospel. And one of the great benefits of a diversified, qualified, culturally sensitized, gospel-advancing team is that we help each other see blind spots and we help each other grow, and we recognize in humility that we actually need each other precisely for those reasons. Which brings us to a second thing. The gospel comes to Philippi through a spirit-directed, obedient team. Notice with me in verses 6 to 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. 
A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God called us to preach the gospel to them. It's a remarkable paragraph. The main actor in this paragraph, like the main actor in the entire book of Acts, is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is referenced there in both verse 6 and verse 7. But if we're going to be a Spirit-directed team, there are a couple things we have to be able to do. Number one, we have to be able to hear the Holy Spirit say no. See there in verse 6? Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Again in verse 7, and when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, beloved, we can easily assume that God, the Holy Spirit, wants what we want. We say, we, this is a good thing, preaching the gospel, right? And every creature needs to hear it, right? And I want to preach it, right? So surely God must be for that. Wrong. God says, No. I wonder if we're accustomed to hearing God say no. I love this quote from our sister Lori Ferguson Wilbert wrote a wonderful post uh, just yesterday and had these lines in it. One of the great tragedies of mediocre faith and biblical illiteracy is that we can confuse our dreams with God's promises. We believe that simply because we have a strong desire for something or a deep longing that God intends it for us. Beloved, one of the main ways we make ourselves hard or insensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading is by assuming that the Holy Spirit wants everything we want. And when we assume the Holy Spirit wants everything that we want, then we do things like stop praying, stop asking and listening. We think every delay and every opposition is from the world or the devil. And ultimately, if we're not careful, we end up angry with God, don't we? Sometimes the delay we experience is God saying no. Delays and failures may be coming from the Holy Spirit. We say God is sovereign, but one of the ways God exercises his sovereignty is by saying no. If God never says no to me and you, then you and I are sovereign. Even with the Apostle Paul trying to press into Bithynia and Mysia, the Holy Spirit say no. Keep moving. Pass by. To be sensitive to the Spirit, we have to be open to God vetoing our plans. So here's the question. When's the last time we listened for a no from God for something we really wanted? When's the last time we prayed, God, please tell me no if this is not your will? The gospel came to Philippi because God said no to Mycenae and Bithynia. Sometimes God does much more for us with a no than he could with the yes we want. 
Now notice now, the Holy Spirit says no, but the Holy Spirit also says go. You see there in verses 8 to 10, uh, they move on down to Troas, and Paul has a vision of where to go. Uh, uh, verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, probably looked like Cliff Roberts from Shreveport, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, this kind of supernatural vision isn't the way God normally speaks to Christians in the Bible. And then normally the way God speaks to Christians today, this is unique. But the Lord is revealing his will to Paul in this vision and saying, go over there to Macedonia. That's where I'm going to bless the work and bless the ministry. Now, Paul has attempted to go a couple of places and, and the Spirit has forbidden Paul. Now Paul has this vision and he's saying, okay, go to Macedonia. And Paul might be tempted to think, is that really the Lord? And the question is, how can we discern the difference between the Lord sending us somewhere with a go and sending us somewhere with a no. Well, notice what happens in verse 10. Paul gets the vision, but in verse 10, the Bible says, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We know God is speaking when we have revelation. For Paul, that was a vision. For us, it's the Bible. And we have confirmation from godly others in the team. When we discern together with folks who have the mind of Christ whether this is the Lord or not. And so it becomes here in this team not just a matter of Paul being the leader, Paul being the apostle. Paul is not an autocrat. He's not a lone ranger leader. Paul says, brothers, I had a vision last night. Let me tell you what it means. Let's pray about this thing. And the team concludes together. God's calling us to go preach the gospel in that place. This has real, though it's historical literature, has real important pastoral application for us today. Let me give you two applications. Number one, some of you are interested in a call to missions. You feel a burden to go to the mission field full time. And in our culture, we, we sort of um, cultivate missions fervor by talking about a person's personal sense of calling, and we even sort of talk with them about whether they feel called to a particular place or a particular people. And that's important conversation. But it shouldn't be conversation. It shouldn't be the only conversation. Added to that must be the discernment of leadership and a discernment even of an entire church. When Paul and the team left on their first missionary journey in Acts 13 verses 1 and 2, it was the entire church that laid hands on them and set them apart and sent them off for the work of the ministry. And here now on that journey is the team that's still discerning together. So if you're interested in missions, Praise the Lord. We want missions in our DNA. We only want to encourage that, but we do not want to encourage you to be a lone ranger. Discern together, as many of you have, with the pastors and with the church, and be ready for the Lord to edit your plans and understand that his editing is not your failure. If you thought you were going to one place like Bithynia and Mysia, do not be discouraged if, Paul, or if God sends you to Philippi. Your posture should very simply to be this. Lift one foot in a direction and let God place it where he wants to. Have a heart to go, but a desire for God to direct. 
The second application is just like it. We've laid before you um, the, the nomination of our brother George to serve us as a pastor. That's not something George just gets to decide unilaterally. It's not even something that the pastors just decide unilaterally. We're congregational, which means that one of the main responsibilities you have as a church, as a member of this church, is calling the leaders and pastors of this church. Beloved, never take that casually. What we're really after is what we see here in Acts 16, 6 to 10. We're after hearing from the Holy Spirit. Hearing from God. Yes, go. Or quite possibly no. Either one is a blessing from God. We want to discern and receive the blessing. So I pray and trust that you've been praying for us and praying for George and praying for God's will in this matter and not being lackadaisical. Seek the Spirit. Seek His guidance. So that on the 20th, when we vote, we're actually celebrating the sense that we have heard from God's Spirit and are following His Spirit. You're tracking with me? They are Spirit-directed, and they are also obedient. Notice verse 10 also. When they hear from the Lord and discern that it is the Lord, they obey the Lord. They get right on up and head to Macedonia. They don't spend time vacationing in the warm springs of Troas, putting things off. But having heard from the Lord, they didn't respond to the Lord. The gospel comes to Philippi through a Holy Spirit-directed and obedient team, which brings us to a third thing. The gospel comes to Philippi by crossing gender barriers to include women. Look with me in verses 11 to 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So now we're in Philippi. Notice there in verse 12, they're only there, Paul says, some days in this leading city, this major strategic city. So they've, they're not in Kansas anymore. They're in the big city. And, and they're only there for a few days. And I find that encouragement because it, it means that if the Spirit is blessing the ministry, it don't take years to establish a church, only days. If the team is faithful with the gospel, it, it may not take years, but only days for God to convert and establish a people in a city. But now notice now, God sends them, verse 13, outside the gate. Apparently there's no synagogue there, which means that there's no sizable Jewish community, and so the evangelistic mission does not start in a synagogue. All you would need in a, in a Jewish city of that day to start a synagogue is, I think, about 12 men uh, of age, and apparently there's not even that. So they're outside the gate, by the riverside, 
where the women are. Reminds you of John 4 with Jesus and the woman at the, at the well, a Samaritan woman, doesn't it? But more than that, it should remind us also of, of Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12, where Christ was crucified outside the gate. And we are called to go outside the gate with him, bearing with him the reproach and the shame. So metaphorically, this location is perfect for illustrating how the gospel goes out to people who were marginalized and includes them. And so they're outside the gate, and they meet with some women whom they suppose were out there to, to pray. A number of women, apparently, and this male apostolic team, apparently, has no qualms about meeting with them in public to share the gospel. Praise God, there's no Billy Graham rule when it comes to evangelizing publicly. And so they're out there with these women, including one named Lydia, who is from another city called Thyatira, who is a seller of purple goods, which indicates she's probably a woman of some means because purple dye and purple cloth would have been expensive in that day. And we read this wonderful, wonderful line, verse 14. God opened her heart to hear what Paul was preaching. It's a wonderfully tender description of what it means to be converted. She was a worshiper of God, which probably means she was a Gentile who was a, a God-fearer, who had respect for the God of Israel, but, but, but hadn't been sort of converted to Judaism. And here she is outside the city, outside the gate, by the riverside with the other women, and along comes the apostle, and he preaches the gospel, and the Holy Spirit opens her heart. And she believes and is baptized. And beloved, if you're a Christian, that's what happened to you. God opened your heart. Amen. Amen. It was closed, like every sinner's closed. It was hard even toward God, like every sinner's heart is hard toward God. And it had been strengthened in its hardness by the routines and the propaganda of a sinful world. And we were disinterested. And much to our surprise, one day, somebody starts speaking to us about Jesus, and we were listening. And to our greater surprise, not only were we listening, but, but we felt in some way the message was inside us, resonating with us, making contact with the deepest longing that we had. That when that person told us that we were a sinner, we were not offended in the same way that we had been many times before. But something in us said, that's right. And we grieved our sin. And when that person told us that we needed to turn away from sin, we could see the way sin had been destroying us. And we said, that's right. My sin is not my friend. And when that person told us about Jesus having died on the cross to take away our sin and having been raised from the grave to give us new and eternal life, the heart screamed, I want that. That's good news. I don't have to do anything but believe and God will make me a new creature and I will rise up from this death of sin to live forever with God. The heart said, yes. And it wasn't you opening your heart. It was God 
like he did with Lydia by that riverside on that day that he had appointed for her salvation. And God is still opening hearts, breaking locks and taking off chains and giving people repentance and faith. And maybe you need him to open your heart this morning. Call upon him to do it. He's not too busy. He's not so mad or so distant that he doesn't hear you. This is the one prayer God always answers. Save me from the judgment to come. Maybe you need to pray that this morning. I pray you would. Maybe you need to call upon the Lord to open your heart. I pray you would because he does and he will. The gospel first came to Philippi in the heart of a Gentile woman. Outside the gate. Marginalized. And I want you to see one more thing from this paragraph that not only does God open her heart, but God intends to use women in the business of the gospel. Inclusion, as I said, has been a problem since the first days of the church. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, when all the language groups are there, there, there's confusion about uh, what do we do now? Where's the gospel going? In Acts 6, when there's a a, a raging kind of problem between Hebrew-speaking widows and Greek-speaking widows, it it threatens the unity and the inclusion of the church. In Acts 15, they've got to have this Jerusalem council to figure out what do we do with the Gentiles. And here you see the gospel bursting forth into a new city with another group of people often marginalized in that world with women. Inclusion is an old problem. The truth is, not only must the church include women, the church must also employ women. Mere inclusion is not the end game. We don't have a church that is diverse and inclusive merely because there are about 18 or 19 nationalities in here right now. Not if what we're trying to do is to take all of that diversity and make it monochromatic and sort of assimilate it to one standard, one cultural standard that's not the biblical standard. That's not what the Bible has in mind when it talks about diversity. And we haven't reached the apex of inclusion if in some way, intentional or unintentional, we're marginalizing gifted persons that God means to use in the work of his gospel. So verse 15, notice how Lydia puts it. She says, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, that's an interesting way to phrase it. How many people are supposedly included in in so-called gospel preaching churches but are not judged faithful by the leaders of that church, faithful enough to use in the work of the ministry? How many churches and leaders are like, you can be here and we're glad, but just sit there while we serve the Lord? And how often is that attitude implicitly and sometimes explicitly simply communicating, we don't really regard you as a follower of Jesus that we really need or really need to take notice of. And how often is that attitude unchecked? The Lord Jesus had women who financed his earthly ministry in Luke chapter 8 verse 3. 
And here, likewise, Lydia, at least for the days that Paul and the team are in Philippi, is the one who is providing support and hospitality for them in her own home while they are there. So we must include sisters, but we must also encourage the Lord or or allow the Lord to use sisters as he sees fit. So here's the question. ARC, do we have a vision for the joyful, zealous, sacrificial, immediate, and biblical inclusion and use of women in the work of the ministry? Will that mark us as different from so much of Christianity? And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us because on the, on the left and the right, it seems like the church has messed this issue up. And quite frankly, in a lot of churches, the lack of joy for a lot of our sisters is connected to the ways they are restricted in their ability to serve the Lord joyfully. And connected to the ways in which leaders overlook them as allies in the gospel. So we want to be biblical, but we also want to be zealous and joyful and glad about this inclusion and about the use of all God's people in God's work. The gospel comes to Philippi, crossing gender barriers. Brings us number four. Comes to Philippi through spiritual warfare and human persecution. Look with me at verses 16 to 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I don't know why, but that encourages me. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, it is often the case that when the gospel goes to a new land, invading the enemy's territory, it will encounter pretty quickly spiritual warfare and human persecution. You see the spiritual warfare in in verses 16 to 18, this tragic scene of this young girl. She's not a woman. She's a girl. She's enslaved. She's demon-possessed. And for greed and gain, she is controlled by her slave masters. Probably should resist this, but I can't. For some of y'all who have been keeping up with current debates, this is intersectionality. She is a young girl. That's one vulnerability, one part of her identity. She is demon-possessed. 
That's another part of our identity. She is a slave. It's another part of our identity. She stands in a power relationship with her slave owners whose lives are markedly different as men with money and power. It's just right there on the page, right there in the Bible. It's just a way of describing the ways in which our various identities and situations do in fact intersect with each other and compound. That's for y'all who know, on the side. Verses 16 to 18. And notice what she does. She follows this missionary team screaming at the top of her lungs. These men are messengers from the Most High God preaching this message of salvation. And, and it would seem that, you know, if, you know, they are that. They are the messengers. They are preaching the gospel. And, and it would seem like even having a demon-possessed girl proclaim that would be a good thing. But, but here's the problem. Matthew Henry catches it well. He says, much mischief is done to the real servants of Christ by unholy and false preachers of the gospel who are confused with the real servants by careless observers. So keep in mind, now she's demon-possessed and she's being used for, um, for money. She's been exploited in that way. Their agenda is not the gospel at all. And her walking around talking about these men are preaching the gospel really sort of blurs the line of distinction that gospel messengers ought to keep from false teachers. And after several days, Paul gets vexed. And Paul says, you know what? Come out of her. The demon comes out right away, and that's when the human persecution starts because he done messed up their money. All right, verse 19, the exorcism works. they like, yo, we, we can't make money on this girl no more. And they grab Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace and take them before the courts and the rulers of the town, verses 20 and 21, they try to shut down the gospel. And they use every sinful, wicked, worldly, divisive tactic that they can. Notice now, there is a racist nationalism and bigotry in their charge. These men are Jews, but we're Romans. There is a law and ordering fear-mongering in their charge. They are disturbing the city. They had not been. There's religious prejudice in their charge. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us. Beloved, there are no new tactics under heaven. The backward fundamentalisms of intolerance are the same today as they were in the first century. But it can't stop the gospel. Don't you ever worry about that. It cannot stop the gospel. When the gospel comes to a city with power, it destroys idols. When the gospel comes to a city with power, it destroys the industries that are built upon that idolatry. But check this now. When the gospel comes to a city with power, the preachers of the gospel need to be prepared to suffer persecution. Notice. Verses 22 to 24, the crowds attacked him. The magistrates sentenced him. They're thrown into prison. This is an interesting little phrase at the end of verse 24, to keep them safely. Safely from the mob? <laughs> safely in jail? What? But either way, this ain't safety. They're beaten and exposed for preaching the gospel. What's remarkable is Paul and Silas's willingness to endure such treatment for the gospel. It's the same thing you see back in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where Peter and John were beaten by the authorities for preaching the gospel, but they leave in verse 41 
rejoicing, counting themselves, you know, amazed that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Paul and Silas, we'll see, has that same kind of joy. But there are questions for us to consider. Do we count it so great an honor to know Jesus and to be called a Christian that we would rejoice to suffer for his name and his gospel? Is identifying with Jesus so important and precious to us that we would happily identify with Jesus even if it meant being beaten and jailed? That's what our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church around the world face every day. That's sometimes what it takes to to get the gospel to a Philippi. And the question for us is, are we praying now for strength and wisdom for what we might have to face then? Use your peacetime to prepare for wartime, beloved. Or do we notice in our hearts and minds that our hearts and minds are already plotting ways to avoid identifying with Jesus should trouble come so that we may be safe and comfortable. Check your heart. What's it doing right now? Leaning in or drawing back? The gospel spreads through spiritual warfare and human persecution. But it also spreads by praising God and preaching Jesus. This is what we see in verses 25 to 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Paul and the crew are in jail. Verse 24, they're fastened by their feet. They're put in stocks. But notice what happens. They praise God anyhow. 25 and 26, they're in there praying and singing. And they're praying so earnestly and singing so earnestly. Notice they've got a little concert audience. Everybody in the jail listening. You see, joy-filled Christians make unusual prisoners. Then it's like God starts praising with them. The Lord claps so loudly an earthquake happens. The earthquake does something strange too. Did you notice this? The earthquake loosens them from their shackles and the stockade. Beloved, you're never alone or powerless when you're praising God. 
And not only are they praising God, but they are also preaching Christ. The jailer wakes up. He thinks everyone has escaped. He runs in. He sees the doors are open, and he takes out his sword. He's about to kill himself, which would have been his duty as a Roman soldier in that day because of the emphasis Roman culture placed on honor. This would have been a great shame, and death would be preferable to shame in that honor culture. Notice what Paul does. Paul breaks in first to stop the man from harming himself. He says, yo, we in here, doc. Don't do that. And beloved, sometimes before you can get people to hear the gospel, you got to stop them from hurting themselves. Just the other day, walking around the corner, brother around the corner from our home, standing out on the corner, just dazed out of it on Scooby Snacks or K4 or something. He couldn't hear the gospel because he's killing himself with that drug. He's got to be sobered and cleansed and taken out of the sun and, 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 and helped and be brought to his right mind before he can really consider the gospel. I think about Pastor Jeremy, how often he goes to the park right across the street from his church to engage cats in the park who are doing heroin and other things, trying to stop them from taking heroin enough to come inside to hear the gospel. Sometimes you've got to stop people from hurting themselves before you can help them with the gospel. So Paul says, don't hurt yourself. But notice number two, he seizes the opportunity. The man says in verse 29 or so, what must I do to be saved? Now, Paul, so filled with praise, is ready to give a gospel answer. This is how I know Paul a better man than me, because I probably would have been in there licking my wounds, and then God would have did the earthquake, and the man would have said, what must I do to be saved? And I've been like, man, what, what verse? Uh, See, Paul stays ready so he doesn't have to get ready. And he seizes that opportunity. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your whole household with you. And the text says he goes on to explain. That's the third thing we see there. He seeks to explain the gospel fully. Notice they move from the jail over to the jailer's home and he's now speaking with his entire family. I love this about Paul. Paul preaches the gospel. He calls people to repent and believe. But Paul takes the time to make sure people understand the gospel. I'm not just trying to do a gospel presentation. I'm not just trying to blurt out the good news. Paul is trying to make sure this thing is actually in people, that they understand it, and that they are proper subjects for baptism. Let me show you his patience. Did you notice there in the text? Paul is in his home, the jailer's home, teaching the jailer, and he's still bloody from the beating. It's not until after the man and his family understand and are baptized that then he has his wounds cleaned. Now that's patient zeal, beloved. That's zeal according to knowledge. That's how we want to do our evangelism. Right? And so Paul brings Christ to this man and his family by stopping the man from harming himself, seizing the opportunity with the man, but seeking also to patiently explain the gospel. Now you're here this morning, you've already heard me talk about the new life that you can have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The need for you to confess your sins and to repent, which means to turn away from sin and to turn to God in faith. But I don't doubt that you might still have questions. The reason we don't do a whole bunch of pressure and try to get people to walk down the aisles is because we want to be patient with your soul. You probably know people who have faked it for a while only to go back to their sin. I know I do. The first time I responded to the gospel publicly, I wasn't saved. Got baptized two weeks later, I was a wet heathen. 
And all you do is look at my life. You're like, yeah, he a healing. <laughs> We're not trying to replicate that kind of mistake. We want to have all the time in the world that we can have with you to make sure you understand and that your faith is Christ. But we want you also to know that you don't have all the time in the world. We all have a date on a calendar where God will call our lives due and judgment will come. Don't put off for tomorrow the questions that you can get answered today. But we're here, the Christian friend who brought you, we will spend all day with you telling you about Jesus. It would be our delight. Let us take you to lunch. Or let us stay with you after the service. But don't, beloved, be casual with your soul. Be urgent with it. And seek the Lord while he may be found. That you might have the salvation from the judgment to come. The gospel comes to Philippi with this kind of team that endures spiritual warfare and human persecution and that praises God and preaches Christ which brings us to our final thing the gospel comes to Philippi number six by practicing justice while submitting to authority look with me in verses 35 to 40 but when it was day the magistrate sent the police saying let those men go And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. I like that little defiance there. Visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. You see the scene there as we close. Verse 35 and 36. The magistrates are like, we're going to let you go on the quiet tip. Let, let him go. You see Paul's response in verse 37. Paul is like M'Baku. It's challenge day. <laughs> he says, we have watched as, <laughs> as your religious and sociological development is overseen by a mob. Who scoffs at Roman citizens? We will not have it. <laughs> we will not have it told. <laughs> so I was like, no. You beat me publicly. You whipped me publicly. You stripped me naked publicly. You didn't give me any trial that really led to my condemnation. And you threw me in jail in front of a crowd in the marketplace. Now you're going to send somebody around here to say, it's all right, you can go. No, tell him, I'm a Roman. We ain't going nowhere they fix this. You see there in verse 38, oh, Lord, he a Roman. <laughs> now, they couldn't have been bothered the first time to go themselves, but now the reports come back, and the mattresses go to see, to go see Paul, right? Hat in hand. Would you forgive us? What's Paul doing here? Well, Paul is calling for justice. 
if justice is such a thing as punishment fitting the crime, then justice is also restoration fitting the false punishment. They beat him publicly. They need to exonerate him publicly. They dishonored him publicly. They now need to honor him publicly. And what else is Paul doing? Why call to mind that he's a Roman citizen? He's using his privilege, isn't he? And this is not something new to Paul. Paul does this throughout Acts. Acts 21, he does it. Later in Acts, Paul is a man of many privileges. He's a well-educated Jewish man, and sometimes he don't mind playing a Jewish card. And he is a Roman citizen by birth, and sometimes he don't mind playing that card either. He's using his privilege in order to contend for what is just. And notice, he doesn't do that just so he can preach the gospel. He's about to leave the town. He does that because justice is an appropriate end in and of itself. And so Paul calls for justice to be restored in the face of this injustice. He and his team has suffered, and he uses his privilege as an advantage, not just for himself in some selfish way, but as an advantage for what is right. And we know this is not just a happenstance in the history of the early church because Paul tells us it's his self-conscious strategy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 and following, where he says things like this, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the, those not under the law, I became like those not under the law. Though myself was not under the law, I'm under the law of Christ. To, to all people, I become all things. And in that case, so that I might win some. See, Paul understands that he has been so freed in Christ that he doesn't have to clutch his privileges as an idol. He's been so freed in Christ that Christ is so much his identity that he can put on and take off his own ethnicity, his own religious background. He can put on and put off the identity of others because of who he is in Jesus. His self is not an idol. Christ is his object of worship. And that frees him so radically to use all that he is in the defense of justice and the gospel. But now when they've done that, notice what they do in verses 39 and 40. They they come out, they're led out publicly. They throw a parade for Paul and Silas. They swing by Lydia's crib, pick up the scrolls and a toga. We're going to go ahead and dip, you know. And then they depart in peace. They're not anarchists. They're not rebels. It's Paul who tells us in Romans 13 that government is ordained by God and that authority properly used is a good gift from God. It's not just Paul who thinks that way. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that we should honor the emperor, that we should should give respect to those who are authority. Jesus himself says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so... They witness to justice and the gospel also in the proper submission to authority. That's the rope we need to walk, beloved. That's the tightrope. We need to stand for justice when justice is encroached upon. And, And we need to properly submit to the authorities, knowing that God has ordained them. But submission to the authority does not mean complying with injustice. And fighting injustice does not mean we become anarchists. Turning the other cheek is not the same thing as turning a blind eye. Sometimes turning the other cheek perpetuates injustice. 
sometimes it's a wonderfully liberating act of forgiveness. We need to be able to discern the difference because we're being witness to the coming of the kingdom in a new neighborhood or a new city. And that witness includes, yes, the freedom and the eternal life that Christ gives, but it also includes the justice and righteousness of the kingdom itself. This is how the gospel comes to Philippi. In a diversified, qualified, culturally sensitized gospel team. Comes to Philippi through a Holy Spirit-directed, obedient team. Comes to Philippi crossing gender barriers to include women in the work of the gospel. Comes to Philippi despite spiritual warfare and human persecution. It comes in the hands of people who praise God anyhow and preach Jesus anywhere. And it comes to Philippi by those who are just and contend for justice, but also uphold righteousness and authority. We want the gospel to come in even greater ways to Anacostia. I think this might be a blueprint for us as we think through Philippians. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your matchless wisdom. We thank you for your infinite kindness shown to us in Christ your Son. And we praise you for your clear communication. You have sat down your thoughts in your word. And we thank you that your word continues to speak today. We live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Give us, like Lydia, an open heart to pay attention to every word. And grant that we, like Paul and Silas and Timothy, would be directed by the Spirit spirit and quick to obey. And grant, as we have seen here in these, these few verses, that hearts would be open and people would cry out, what must I do to be saved? And that salvation would come to them and their whole household. We believe you're still doing what you did do in Acts 16. And we ask that you would do it greatly here among your churches in D.C., in Anacostia, around the world. Help us to get things right. Not because we're Pharisees, but because we honor you. Help us to get things right so that your glory would be magnified. Help us to do it with joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.